The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. Sunny little passage for a sunny spring-feeling day. I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There's almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain which many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. Yet it is because I'm convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and ride on. These are the words of, of John Stott in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I've, I've, I've not read every commentary out there, but I've, I've read quite a few commentaries, quite a few passages from quite a few commentaries, and I've, I've never come across words quite like these in one of those commentaries before. Now, on, on the one hand, they give us a window into Stott's compassionate pastoral heart. And on the other hand, they speak to the, the complexity and the tenderness of today's passage. Now, I just want to say at the onset here that I, I share Stott's basic sentiment. Because I, I know that if we surveyed our body right now, I'm guessing that nearly everyone in the room today has been impacted by divorce, either directly or indirectly. Lots of us, maybe all of us, have been impacted by divorce. Some of you are divorced. Some are divorced and have remarried. Others have not and have made peace with that. Others have not and desperately desire to remarry. You might be dating someone who was divorced, or maybe you're married to someone who was divorced, or maybe you remember the day, the day your parents told you they were getting a divorce, and you remember that day because that was the day that everything changed. And so despite Stott's reluctance, despite my reluctance, despite the controversy and the complexity, despite the tenderness, we're going to talk about divorce this morning. Because the Bible talks about divorce. Jesus talks about divorce. And so we can't help but talk about it because we want to submit ourselves to the entirety of God's Word. And it is sufficient for us even on this topic. It is authoritative even as it speaks to the topic of divorce. And so as we do this today, we, I, we're going to be unapologetically committed to the authority and the sufficiency 
of God's Word in this area just like every other area. And I'll be honest, it's not always convenient to submit yourself to the authoritative, all-sufficient Word of God. But this is what faith, this is what trust in Jesus looks like. This is what it looks like to be kingdom people. This is what fidelity and submission to Jesus look like. And this is, this is who we are. We are two pillars church. We, we are Jesus' people. We're committed to faith and trust in Him. Not to faith and trust in ourselves or in the pursuit of our own happiness. We're committed to faithfully submitting and I pray joyfully submitting to His reign and rule. Not, not to our own autonomy. We're committed to His glory, not to our own glory. And at the same time, we need to admit that we are completely, utterly, and desperately dependent upon His redeeming grace and forgiveness this morning. And so with that said, let's dive in to the text, which you probably noticed is a pretty short text. Evian wasn't up here for very long. It was just two short verses. And so in in light of that, I I want to point out that we're also going to be giving a fair amount of attention to Matthew chapter 19, which contains what kind of reads as an extended version of sorts of what we read here in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is is, uh, perhaps a summary of what we read in Matthew chapter 19. And so you might, might want to put a finger there as well. And so here's where we're going to begin today. We're going to begin by looking at the divorce debate. The divorce debate. You see, divorce wasn't just a controversial topic in John Stott's day. It's not just a controversial topic in our day. But the topic of divorce was a very controversial one even in Jesus' day. In particular, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they fiercely debated what God's law actually had to say about the topic of divorce. So let's start in then on on, uh, Matthew chapter 5, again, verse 31. Now this is, remember, this is continuing from last week's passage on lust. And I think it's a really natural transition from that passage to this one. And you're going to notice that Jesus uses the same pattern. This pattern is going to be employed over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said this, but I say to you that. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so beginning in verse 31, we see the the, the first element. He says, Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And just like last week, what Jesus is referring to is Old Testament law. Specifically here in verse 31, Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy 24, which I want to read for us here, here quickly. Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 1, says this. You're going to notice it's this is, a, 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 this is a, a pretty busy four verses. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so Deuteronomy 24, there are lots of ifs in there. If we follow the logic, it is, it's outlining a fairly specific scenario for us. Man A marries a woman. 
And because he uh, finds some indecency in her, we'll talk about what that means here in a minute, he divorces her. First, if he's going to divorce her, he must give her a certificate of divorce. This is important for the protection of the woman. Why? Because this allows her to move on as one who has been divorced and protects her, for example, uh, from her husband turning around at some point in time down the road and saying, I never divorced her. And so the, the certificate is, of divorce is important because it releases the wife. And if this woman goes and marries man B, and he gives her a certificate of divorce or dies, the question then is, can the first husband, man A, take this woman to be his wife again? And the answer that the law gives here is no. And if we had time, we could camp out here a little bit longer and and talk about the specifics of this. But for now, we'll we'll at least make the point that... um, that this is, at the very least, at least in part, for the woman's protection. This man has already gotten one dowry from her. Should he get another? A lot more could be said about that, but let's, let's, let's continue. Now, now, this Deuteronomy 24, this is and was the, uh, the, the topic the the central focal point of the debate amongst religious leaders in Jesus' day. More specifically, the debate was over a single word in Deuteronomy 24. Looking at our English translations, the the phrase in question was was about what it meant to find some indecency in her. What did it mean for a husband to find some indecency in his wife. So that's in the Deuteronomy 24, uh, verse 1. Now we had two basic camps of thought here. On the one hand, we had a more conservative camp following a, a rabbi named Shammai. And this camp held that divorce was not permitted except in cases of of immorality, sexual immorality in particular. This was the more conservative take on the issue. And this camp was in opposition to the Hillel camp. On the other hand, which held a much more permissive position. And it seems as though, based upon the question we're going to see the Pharisees ask Jesus in chapter 19, it seems as though this position was beginning to gain some traction and may have won the day. According to this rabbi, a man could divorce his wife for anything unseemly. What does it mean to be unseemly, you might ask? Well, one commentator explains that if she, a man's wife, proved to be an incompetent cook and burned her husband's food, or if he lost interest in her because of her plain looks and because he became enamored with some other more beautiful woman, these things by this camp were deemed to be unseemly and justified him divorcing her. I didn't write that. That's not my opinion. That's Rabbi Hillel. And so then, This gives some of the cultural context to the question that the Pharisees bring to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 3. Listen to their question. And Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking. So so here's what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees want to draw Jesus into the debate. And they asked him this, is it lawful to divorce one's wife For any cause? Dinner was burnt last week. For any cause? I just came across a woman who's even more beautiful than my wife. For any cause? And so the the Pharisees, they they would like Jesus to to weigh in on the debate. And this is exactly what Jesus does 
with the Pharisees in Matthew 19. They want him to weigh in on divorce, but he has something different to say. They want to get in a, into a conversation about the nuts and bolts of divorce and when is divorce permissible and for what reason might one seek a divorce. But Jesus, he'll get there eventually, but, but first... Before he articulates his position on divorce, Jesus is going to lay a foundation for his teaching on divorce. And the foundation for his teaching on divorce is his teaching on marriage. And so let's, let's take a look at this foundation of Jesus' teaching on divorce. We've, we've set up the debate. Now, let's lay the foundation Once again, the Pharisees ask Jesus this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And this is Jesus' response. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? Do you recognize Jesus' teaching there? Do you recognize where that's coming from? The Pharisees would have. They knew their Bibles well. Jesus has taken us all the way back to the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Specifically, Jesus references Genesis 1.27. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then after citing these two verses, Jesus summarizes his teaching on marriage, highlighting uh, at least two very important points. Number one, two individuals in marriage, one man and one woman, become one flesh in an exclusive covenant union. The marriage covenant, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden in which marriage was created, was always intended to be an exclusive covenantal union. Number two. The covenant union between husband and wife is intended to be a permanent union, never to be broken except by death. So they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh, exclusive, one man, one woman. What therefore God has joined together, he writes in 19.6, he says in 19.6, Let not man separate. Permanent. Till death do us part. And it seems as though at this point that the Pharisees are tracking with Jesus. Because their question, honestly, and I I know they're trying to set a trap for Jesus, but um, it it makes a lot of sense. Their follow-up question is this. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, we could take issue with the fact that Jesus commanded uh, a giving of a certificate and and sending away as as if Moses commanded divorce. But really what they're asking here is, is if... If the marriage union was intended to be exclusive and permanent, why was Moses permitting the giving of a certificate of divorce? Why did Moses allow it? Again, the the reference here is to Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus responds. He He says to them this, because of your hardness of heart, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. You see, divorce was never a part of God's original design for man. Jesus is is clear about this. Rather, it was because of the hardness of 
God's people's hearts that a provision was made for divorce. It, it was an allowance. It was a concession made because of the sin of God's people. You see, marriage began as a part of God's created order in Genesis 1 and 2. Divorce, on the other hand, finds its root in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. That's what Jesus tells the Pharisees. And so then, before we can have a conversation about divorce, like Jesus, we need to have a conversation about marriage and God's intended design for marriage. You see, we can't answer questions about the permissibility of divorce without first answering some questions about the exclusivity and permanence of marriage. We can't answer questions about whether or not remarriage is permitted until we first talk about marriage. We can't fully appreciate the weight of Jesus' teaching on divorce until we first understand that it also has something to say about the weight of marriage. See, Jesus' teaching on divorce in the Sermon on the Mount and in Matthew 19, it's about much more than divorce, isn't it? Those, those two short verses in Matthew chapter 5. Remember what the Sermon on the Mount is. It, it reveals the, the heart of God's law and describe, describes to God's kingdom people what life in the kingdom should look like. And so what Jesus isn't doing here is he's not cracking down on divorce. He's calling his people to healthy, thriving, God-honoring marriages that put the glorious wisdom of God's created order on display. Now at this point, we should also add something from Paul's teaching on marriage in Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 31, notice, by the way, where Paul begins. It's in the very same place that Jesus began, creation. What Paul has to say about marriage, he's going to root in the created order. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Not only has God created marriage to be an exclusive and permanent union between a man and a woman, but, Paul tells us, marriage is also a, a picture that points beyond itself to something bigger. Paul says marriage is a picture that points beyond itself to something better, to, to, to something more glorious than marriage itself. Our marriages, you see, are to be a picture of the gospel. Jesus, the bridegroom, and us, the church, his bride. And what is the gospel but the good news of a, a sinful and unfaithful people being reconciled to their God? A God who faithfully pursued them through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, through His life, death, and resurrection. I, we don't have to think any further than a wedding ceremony. Think about the last wedding ceremony that, that you were at. This is a good setup for uh, wedding season, which is, which is almost upon us as, as spring is, is just around the corner. We talk about all, this all the time in our premarital counseling around here. Symbolism is all over the place in a wedding ceremony. So th think about that moment when the doors open, the wedding party is in their places, the doors open, and the bride is presented to her husband, future husband. She slowly makes her way down the aisle. What is she wearing? What is she wearing? She's wearing a, a, a beautiful white dress, a, a beautiful white wedding gown. What is this wedding gown symbolic of? 
that the bride is, is wearing? Is it symbolic of, of the bride's own purity? Is it symbolic of the bride's righteousness? No. It's not symbolic of the bride's purity or righteousness at all. It's symbolic of Jesus' purity. It's symbolic of Jesus' righteousness, which he imputes as a gift to his bride. The bride is clothed in the purity and the righteousness of the bridegroom. This is what is happening and being portrayed. This is what is being symbolized in the wedding ceremony. Though her sins might be like scarlet, She's been washed white as snow, pure, set apart, righteous. You see, the wedding ceremony is intended to, to paint a picture that tells the world something about the gospel and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But it doesn't just end with the marriage ceremony. Our marriages, imperfect though they may be, communicate something to the watching world. Our marriages make God's glory known. Our, our marriages, they tell the world about what Jesus is like and about the hope that can be found in Him. Our marriages, they tell a story of redemption and reconciliation and restoration. So then, before we can have a conversation about divorce and the ins and outs of when it's permitted and when it isn't, we first need to understand that our, our marriages are a gospel proclamation to the world and to one another. And unless we feel the weight and the significance of this, brothers and sisters, we can't possibly understand the weight and the significance of divorce. John Stott, at the end of his commentary on these two verses, says this, I've made the rule never to speak with, any more, with anybody about divorce until I've first spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. Sometimes a discussion of these topics makes a discussion of the other unnecessary. At the very least... It is only when a person has understood and accepted God's view of marriage and God's culture of reconciliation that a, a possible context has been, has been created in which one may regretfully go on to talk about divorce. This principle of pastoral priorities is, I believe, consistent with the teaching of Jesus. And so, look, Jesus' teaching on divorce, it's, it's not irrelevant. It isn't that Jesus has nothing to say about divorce. We just need to keep first things first. And so having, having first looked at his teaching on marriage, we're ready to move on to Jesus' teaching on divorce. And look, I, I know that when we talk about a topic like this one, there are all kinds of practical nuts and bolts questions being asked. Out loud, internally. You probably have some rolling around in your head right now. So we're going to talk about some of the nuts and bolts, but before we do, I want to point out that um, so we're going to talk in terms of biblical principles here. That said, my intention isn't necessarily to be uh, comprehensive and to say everything that there is to be said about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Look, a, a single sermon simply, simply doesn't afford us enough time to be able to do that and to do that well. And, and on top of that, look, every single situation is unique with its own set of complexities, with its own nuances. And this can easily lead to a, a list of 84 what-ifs or, or what-abouts. And look, I, I just want you to know that I care about each and every one of your what-ifs. I care about each and every one of your what-abouts and your yeah-buts. 
It's just we're not going to cover them all here. And so here's the invitation. If, if you have questions about this, just a general curiosity about a theology of marriage and divorce, you'd like to talk more about it, will you, will you come talk to me or one of the other pastors? If you've been touched by divorce in some way, shape, or form, and you have questions about that, will you, will you come talk to one of us? If you're wrestling through some of these realities for you, for your own situation, will you come talk to us? We would love to navigate every single one of those complexities with you in love, with the pastoral sensitivities that, that, that John Stott exemplified when, when he wrote his commentary on, on these verses. And so, with that, let's continue uh, reading the, the rest of our passage in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus' practical teaching on divorce is actually pretty simple. I don't know if you noticed this when Evian read it. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds, on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19 echoes this with a slight twist. And I say to you, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Taken together, there are a few points that we can make here. Point 1A is this. Divorce is only permitted in cases of sexual immorality. This is Jesus' teaching. Jesus gives us a single condition under which divorce is permissible. And that exception is what the ESV renders as sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, which should be understood as a generic term describing a collection of sins related to sexual immorality, such as adultery. But even in this case, as Jay Adams wrote in his book on marriage, divorce, and remarriage in the Bible, the Christian stance then is that divorce is never desirable and among Christians is never inevitable. We'll get to that here in a minute. So 1A, divorce is only permitted in cases of sexual immorality. However, at this point, it's relevant for us to note that the Apostle Paul gives one additional exception in his first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This second exception has, uh, a, kind of comes from a particular set of circumstances as well. In this passage, Paul addresses a marriage in which one spouse is a Christian and the other is not. Remember what Paul was doing. Paul was taking the gospel to the Gentile world. And so it was very, likely very common that two unbelievers who were married would be in a situation where one of those two um, unbelievers in the marriage union would trust Jesus and become a Christian. And the question then is, what now? What now? In this situation here is what Paul writes. He, he writes that if the unbelieving spouse agrees to stay in the marriage and continue living with the believing spouse, then the believing spouse should not divorce the unbelieving spouse. Who knows? He points out the unbelieving husband or wife might actually believe and be saved one day. But, he writes, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the, this kind of 1B category then we would call abandonment or, or desertion. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. And I know this inevitably 
steps on a toe or ten. Jesus doesn't say anything about irreconcilable differences. What does it say to the world about God and his gospel? If his people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, ministers of reconciliation, seek divorce because of irreconcilable differences. Remember, divorce has something to say about marriage because marriage is the foundation upon which we understand divorce and and Jesus' teaching on divorce. Notice what else is not included in, in Jesus or Paul's exceptions. Falling out of love with your spouse. Growing apart. No fault divorce. Paul doesn't talk about your spouse changing. If she just, she's not the woman you married anymore. A good summary, is, as Jay Adams puts it in his book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible, is this. Jay Adams says that divorce is always a result of sin, but is not always sinful. Divorce is always the result of sin. This is, this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they asked, why did Moses allow for divorce? Well, it was because of your hard-heartedness. It was because of sin. At the root of every divorce is Sin, and yet, exceptions are made by Jesus himself, by the Apostle Paul himself, and therefore, not every divorce is sinful. And so then, to pursue divorce according to the teachings of God's Word would not be sinful. My next point. In these cases, divorce is permitted, not commanded. Divorce is permitted, not commanded. Notice that divorce is never commanded or required. Now, this is something that uh, Jesus' contemporaries, the Pharisees, often got wrong. It was a prevalent teaching in Jesus' day that if one's wife committed adultery, for example, that her husband was obligated to divorce her. Look, as as Jesus' kingdom people who are well-versed in the gospel, we know that divorce is seldom inevitable. Reconciliation is is seldom inevitable. I'm sorry, uh, divorce is seldom, you know what I mean. An inability to reconcile isn't inevitable. So divorce is permitted, not commanded. Thirdly, outside of these two exceptions, divorce is forbidden. That means that despite the fact that one may have secured a divorce by legal means, via the state, unless it was for one of these two reasons that we've covered here today, then that divorce is not a biblically permissible divorce. In God's eyes, the covenantal union between husband and wife remains intact. And Jesus is is crystal clear about this. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that divorcing your, your wife for a reason other than sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. How could she commit adultery if she's divorced? The answer is is that the the covenant, uh, the, the marital union, the covenant is still intact. Jesus says whoever she marries next is an adulterer, becomes an adulterer as well. And then in Matthew chapter 19, he says that a man who divorces his wife for reasons other than sexual immorality commits adultery as well. So I just want to point out, Jesus is very comprehensive in who he's calling an adulterer in this hypothetical situation. The woman who is sent away with an unbiblical divorce 
The next man that she marries and the one who sent her away are all made to be adulterers. Why? Because the marital union is still intact. In God's eyes, they are still one flesh. A really important point needs to be made here, though, about abuse. There are some churches who will teach that in cases of abuse, whatever that looks like, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, that this is evidence that a wife is required to to remain in the home with her abusive husband, apparently praying that he would be saved and stop hitting her. That is not what I see as the teaching of, of, of Jesus here. But one who is being abused is not obligated to remain in the home with an abusive spouse. Full stop. Priority number one in the case of abuse is securing the immediate safety of those being abused. And so know that if, if you're in a situation like that and you reach out to one of us as pastors... That's priority number one for us as well. Fourthly, remarriage is only permissible after a biblical divorce. The question, though, is is what does a person do in this case? A person who is divorced but is, is not a biblical divorce. What can one do if he or she can't get Remarried, I think the answer is you, you can wait. Circumstances often change. You trust. Serve in the church. Pursue reconciliation. But again, the teaching of God's Word is, is, is very clear here. That remarriage is, is only permissible after a biblical divorce. <sighs> Look, this is, uh, this is all really complicated. And again, we don't have time here to comprehensively address all the complexities and, and the nuances I just want to reiterate, if you have questions about any of this, I'd be happy to sit down with you. Bible open. We'll just talk through it together. But I, I do want to end it in this way. I want to talk about just some, some application points and implications for those of us here in the room. First of all, if you're here in the room and you're married, I think Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, it has something to say to us about our marriages. And and we should know that our marriages communicate something to the world around us about our God. Because marriage is a creation of our God. And the creation has something to say about its creator. And so know this, that your marriage communicates something to the world around you about the gospel. And no, that doesn't mean that you need to have a perfect marriage. Remember, the good news of the gospel isn't trust Jesus, therefore be perfect. The good news of the gospel is that we are desperately in need of God's grace and mercy for, and, and forgiveness. Not just once, but in an ongoing way. And so the... the, the The gospel doesn't require us to have a perfect marriage, but it does invite us to have a dependent marriage, a marriage that is desperately dependent upon God's grace and strength and sustaining presence. So here's my question for for you if you're married. How, How might you nurture and cultivate unity in your marriage? I wonder what you could do today to cultivate and nurture and protect unity in your marriage. Maybe it means you have to have that conversation you've, you've been avoiding for some time. Maybe it means revisiting the argument from three nights ago. 
that you both just kind of decided to pretend didn't happen? You swept them under the rug, but, but secretly you're festering and anger is building? How can you make an investment in your marriage and the health and strength and unity in your marriage this week, this month, this year? I just want to challenge you. Why don't, why don't you have a, a conversation with your husband or your wife about what it looks like to, to proactively, to intentionally invest in your marriage instead of just kind of letting it happen? Secondly, those whose marriages are, are struggling, I just want to remind you that there is still hope. There is still hope. Remember, marriage is a picture of the gospel. This is a good news of sinners reconciled to a holy God. God's enemies adopted as God's children. The, the dead raised back to life again. If the gospel can raise the dead, certainly it can resurrect your marriage. Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that the very same power that the Spirit worked to raise Jesus from the dead, it's the very same power that he works in the life of a believer. Can you believe that? Not just a power like it, the very power, resurrection power is in you, Christian, being wielded by the, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, if that is true, then there is hope. I just want to end that point by saying, get help. This is not a thing that you're intended to do on your own. And so pull me aside. Pull one of the other pastors aside. Pull someone from your gospel community aside. Pull someone you trust aside. Let them in. Bring it into the light. And let us walk with you. Let us encourage you. Let us speak words of hope in, in, into a situation that, that feels hopeless. And let's at least attempt to navigate a path towards reconciliation and restoration. Those in the room who are single, especially those who desire to get married, I, just, I think it's helpful to, to just stop for a moment and to feel the weight and the significance of what Jesus and God's Word has to say about marriage, about what marriage is, about what it, it, it pictures, about what it says, what it communicates. With that in mind then, how much better are you equipped to pursue a potential marriage covenant with another human being? Topics like compatibility kind of begin to to hold less water and weight when, when, when you're thinking about devotion to Jesus and to his glory through marriage. Not that compatibility isn't unimportant. So, so feel the weight and the significance and, and allow that to guide you. And then lastly, those who are divorced. I know we all have a past. And in the topic of divorce, it's no exception. You may well have a past. I know that we have folks in the room whose past includes divorce. I know we have folks in the room. We likely have folks in the room whose past includes a divorce. It doesn't fall into one of these two categories. You might be realizing just now that your divorce may not have been biblically legitimate. It might, have not, might not have been biblically permissible. You might even be remarried. An unbiblical divorce, can we just say this? An unbiblical divorce is not an unforgivable sin. An unbiblical divorce is not an unforgivable sin. Neither is adultery, as we saw last week. So I just, I just want to plead with you after 40-some minutes that probably felt really heavy and weighty. I just want you to know that there's grace. 
and there's mercy and there's forgiveness for you. Divorce is not your identity. Your identity is, is locked away, secured by your bridegroom himself. Here's where I want to end. <clears throat> I want to end just by reading these words from the prophet Hosea. The Lord has just got done rattling off lots of evidence about the unfaithfulness of His people. How His people have broken the covenant that they made with Him as their God. Listen to these words. Because, brothers and sisters, we've all walked in unfaithfulness. Each and every one of us. So hear, hear these words from our God. This is, this is our God's heart for His people. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals. This is the false gods that they were chasing after. And spiritual adultery. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.